Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill. But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. If you weren't awake yet, you are now. It's great to see you. Welcome to Trinity Community Church, especially if this is your first time here. We'd love to get to know you. We have some connect cards on the table, uh, the welcome table on your way out. You can fill out one of those. We will follow up with you, and we'd love to take you out to lunch or coffee, get to know you better, and plug you in to the life of this church. Now, it's not uh, every day that one of the Ten Commandments becomes a a trending and, and popular thing, a a grand new idea in our culture, but every now and then it does happen. And, uh, you know, we're at a time when our culture is is generally, uh, not entirely, but generally becoming less religious. Every now and then we see these bold new ideas that actually turn out to be just from the Bible in the beginning. And so I remember seeing uh, just recently this new book that came out. It's a business and personal development book, and it's called 24-6 the plow, the power of unplugging one day a week. And so the author makes this, this bold and, and you know incredible claim that if you take one day off every seven days, you'll actually be healthier, more stable, more, more active, even more productive if you take one day off every seven days. I mean, I wish we had a word for this, which we do. It's the Sabbath, and it's been around literally since the beginning of time, since creation. And what we've been doing this fall semester is looking at the Gospel of Mark to better understand what it means to walk in the way of Jesus together. And in the passages that we're looking at, it's two back-to-back passages related to the Sabbath. We see Jesus' whole approach to rest, to the Sabbath, even to salvation. And what's crazy about this passage is that not only does Jesus speak in in huge terms about the Sabbath, but this is actually the point where the religious leaders turn so against him that they're ready to kill him. If you notice that in the very last verse, it's it's chapter 3, verse 6. It says that the Pharisees went out and began plotting with the other religious leaders how they would kill Jesus. And so this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark we've seen that the religious leaders are ready to put Jesus to death. And the thing that sends them over the edge is his approach to the Sabbath. So clearly there's, there's something going on in the Sabbath. There's something to be said for rest that, that is really close to life and death. I mean, it's, it's a matter of salvation. The religious leaders understand that. Jesus certainly understands that. I think by the time we look through these scriptures, we're going to see why that's true as well. And so we're going to look at three things. Why the Sabbath exists, how to practice it, and then where it points us. So why it exists, how to practice it, and then where it points us. So we'll start with why the Sabbath exists. 
Now we get these two scenes from Mark 2 and Mark 3. In the first scene, it says in verse 23, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some of the heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now what they're referring to is the the Sabbath as as an Old Testament, uh, one of the Ten Commandments. It's the Fourth Commandment. And yet when they say that they're doing something that's that's unlawful, that's also not exactly true. Now in in Exodus 20, God spoke the commandments and this is the, the Fourth Commandment. God says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And we should find it significant in the first place that that rest actually makes the Big Ten. I mean, you think about the Ten Commandments. These are these are God's laws. I mean, this is this is Israel's pattern for doing life. And if you remember the scene in Exodus 20, God is is speaking to Moses these laws to give to all of Israel. And from the mountain, He says, "I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before Me. You shall not bow down to idols. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord, and observe the Sabbath." I mean, it's kind of a, it's a shift between the first three, which are so huge, and then basically take a day off. And so it has to be so much more than that. If this is so close to the heart of God that it's the fourth commandment, there has to be something really significant happening here. And actually, in terms of the number of words, God has more to say about this commandment than any of the others. This is the one that has the most teaching attached to it in Exodus 20. The commandment is to make rest a regular rhythm of life. And not just that, but to to create an environment and a society where work and rest are balanced. And that's because both work and rest are part of God's design for the world, part of God's good creation. And it says that God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. To be holy in this sense is to be set apart. And so in the most basic sense, a Sabbath is simply a day unlike any other day. It's a day that's different and separate from the other six. And it's interesting that this is actually the first thing that God makes holy or or names as holy in his creation. The first thing called holy in the scriptures, it's not a person, it's not a place, it's a day. It's the Sabbath. Now here's what happened to the Sabbath in Israel's history and what, what leads us to this passage. In an effort to make sure that everybody was was following the Sabbath exactly right, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and others, began to to create more and more laws and rules to try to protect the Sabbath. In fact, they had hundreds of of additional regulations on how you could or couldn't practice the Sabbath. And so maybe you've heard of some of these. You could only walk a certain number of steps. You could only travel a certain distance away from your home. And there were certain activities that seemed a little bit like work that you couldn't do including picking heads of grain in a field. And so needless to say, by the first century, people had begun to miss the point. The Sabbath wasn't so much about 
dynamics of work and rest and how to be renewed in the presence of God, but it was about what you could do and what you couldn't do. And then all these specific laws and rules to try to, to try to keep people from making a mistake and they missed the entire point. It wasn't a rhythm, it was a demand. It wasn't a blessing, it was a burden. It wasn't a day for freedom, it was a day for strict religiosity. We see in verse 25, Jesus answers this critique. He says, have you never heard what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Now, this is referring to 1 Samuel 21, where David and his men are out on a holy mission from the Lord. And that they arrive in a village with this little tabernacle they haven't eaten probably in days, and yet they have to carry on their mission. And so they go into the, the tabernacle and they ask for the consecrated bread. Now, this is bread that's essentially only to be used for communion and only by the priests. And yet David understands that this bread is, is mostly symbolic. I mean, the, the symbol serves the reality. And so as they come in here doing the Lord's work and there's no other food, David asks the high priest, can we take this food? And the high priest asks a few questions and then says, yes, you may have it. And so David and his men eat and are full and they carry on their way. They understood that the bread was, was meant to be a blessing. It was meant to be a life source in Israel. And David and the priests agreed that the exact law was, was more appropriately fulfilled and, and it's being given to, to the support of David and his troops than by withholding it just for the priests and letting David and his men go hungry. In the same way, Jesus is not making or, or breaking God's Sabbath laws. He's not breaking anything that's in the Old Testament. Or rather, he's only breaking the man-made laws that the Pharisees had put on top of them. Even if he is breaking something, in the example that he uses from David, he's saying that he's eating grain with a different purpose, with a higher purpose. He's actually fulfilling the whole point of the Sabbath anyways. Now he makes this huge statement in verse 27. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, when Jesus is saying that he is Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying that he is the source of the deep rest that we need. Sabbath is all about putting us in, in a place where we can receive rest and refreshment and renewal from God. And what Jesus is saying is that I am actually what you need. Rest points to me. Sabbath points to me. I am Lord even of the Sabbath. The word Sabbath in Hebrew, it's closely related to the word shalom, which means peace, well-being, completeness, wholeness. It's when all the different aspects of your life are flourishing at once. That's shalom. And Sabbath is meant to bring you into a place of shalom. Sabbath is a once-a-week reminder that Jesus is the deep, divine rest that we long for. Now that leads us to the second scene, which begins in chapter 3. It says, Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, the religious leaders, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? 
to save life or to kill. But they remained silent. And he looked around at them in anger and was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Now this is showing us Jesus' whole approach to the Sabbath. Mark is holding these two passages together to show us how Jesus relates to the Sabbath and why it matters so much to him. His, his question is powerful. What is the Sabbath for? Is it for good or is it for evil? Are we to, to do right on the Sabbath or are we to do wrong on the Sabbath? And that's why his, his anger is so, is so strong and it's so revealing. It says that he's deeply distressed. Tim Keller's written that because, he says, why is this? It's because the Sabbath is about restoring the diminished. It's about replenishing the drained. Sabbath is about repairing the broken. And to heal the man's shriveled hand is to do exactly what the Sabbath is all about. And so the text says that Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. So Jesus does exactly what the Sabbath was meant for. He brings about healing. He brings about refreshment. He brings about wholeness and flourishing in the life of this one man. And this is what absolutely sets off the Pharisees. Verse 6, it says, The Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now that might seem like overkill for for a carpenter and a, and a teacher's words on the Sabbath, but here's what they're recognizing. Jesus is saying that he's not here to just, to just follow the, the religious ways of the Israelites. He's not here to just even change and reform their religion a little bit. He's here to completely end all of their man-made rules, all of their little laws, all of their, their extra religious stuff that they have put on top of God's laws. Jesus is here to put an end to that altogether. In fact, the scriptures regularly present salvation and rest as synonyms. Salvation is described in terms of rest a number of times. We read Isaiah 30 already. And repentance and rest is your salvation. And quietness and trust is your strength. Psalm 116, I love. David prays, return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. In the New Testament, Hebrews 4, it says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter into that rest. And so Sabbath is this incredible gift from God. It's a gift from God to, to bring us into rest and renewal and wholeness and replenishment and flourishing. Not just once a week, even though we practice it once a week, but, but that the symbol would lead us to the reality. We would recognize that Sabbath points us to Jesus. It's not an end in itself, but it shows us that Jesus is our true Sabbath. He is our true shalom. Once again, Sabbath is the once a week reminder that Jesus is the divine rest that we long for. Now, the second thing, how do we practice it? How do we practice the Sabbath? And we want to be careful not to make the exact same error that the Pharisees make, where you put so many extra man-made laws on top of it that it loses its original meaning and purpose. And yet it's also something that, that we want to do with wisdom. And so I want to suggest three things, sort of three postures or practices, ceasing, resisting, and feasting. 
So the first one is ceasing. The, the first most basic practice of the Sabbath is that you stop doing some certain things. But there are things that you do on the other six days that you don't do on your Sabbath. It's a day of doing less, of ceasing activity, especially the, the activity that either is work or feels a lot like work. It's a day to have a lighter burden, a slower pace, a deeper attentiveness to what's going on around you. One of my favorite authors, Eugene Peterson, suggests that our, our understanding of Sabbath should follow the old Hebrew pattern, which is to start the Sabbath actually at evening and, and to stretch it to the next evening. So perhaps if your Sabbath is Sunday, you start it on Saturday at dinner time and go through Sunday at dinner time. And here's what he writes about it. This Hebrew evening morning sequence conditions us to the rhythms of grace. We go to sleep and God begins his work. As we sleep, he develops his covenant. We wake and are called out to participate in God's world. We respond in faith, but grace is always previous and primary. I love this part. He says, we wake into a world we didn't make, into a salvation we didn't earn. Evening, God begins without our help his day. Morning, God calls us to enjoy and share and develop the work he initiated. Now, just as I said, pop culture has begun embracing the Sabbath because of the, the, the pace and the, the anxiety of our age. And there's actually some science behind it, too. I remember reading this study a few years ago, but there's a study at the University of Arizona where they were trying to study the, you know, the human's biological clock, you know, our circadian rhythms. And the, the experiment actually sounds terrible because what they did is took people and put them in these underground apartments with no windows and no clocks. And so they had work that they would do, that, you know, they had places to eat and sleep, but they had no awareness whatsoever of what time it was. And they did this for day after day after day. And what they discovered is that every day without fail, everybody would stay up an hour later. And so sleep the same amount, but wake up an hour later. And so they kept having days that were 25 hours instead of 24 until it built up and accumulated. They've done these studies with people in complete dark. They've done them with people in complete light. And the same thing happens. Our biological clocks are far closer to 25 hours than 24, which is why it's always easier to stay up an extra hour than it is to go to bed an hour earlier. I don't know if you felt that. I certainly have. The study then went on to try to figure out the best way to sort of reset the human body. I mean, if you're, if you're having 25-hour biological clock days, how do, you, how do you get your body to, to readjust? And what they said is the most effective treatment was to give people one day in seven to cease all of their labors and to, to rest for longer periods of time. And this actually helps to reset our biological clocks. Now, there's a few sort of practices that we can step into without making them, you know, pharisaical laws, but things that we can step into for increased freedom. My suggestion is, is for most of you to make Sunday your Sabbath, but to do as much as you can on Saturday. Just like if you're, if you're having friends over, guests over for dinner, there's certain things you need to do to, to prepare for that meal. In the same way, we need to often spend our Saturdays preparing for Sundays. And so I, I don't know about you, but for me, there's always a day a week that's not really work, but there's still a lot of stuff that feels like work. I mean, it depends a bit on your life stage, but maybe it's mowing the grass or, 
or doing uh, you know activities with your kids, sports or kids' birthday parties. Maybe you're having to do more work on your house. You know, my trim has been unpainted for a long time. Sabbath is one of my excuses. I have another day off, so it's not a good one. But you can do all of that stuff. I mean, get your car into the shop, all the things that you just have to do, try to do all of that before the Sabbath. So that when it comes, you can actually lay down that work. You can set it aside and have a different pace, a different type of day than any other. So when you wake the next morning, you can sleep in and enjoy your coffee or breakfast. You can come to church if it's a Sunday. You can serve in Trinity Kids. Jesus, the best way to spend the Sabbath. Enjoy lunch and a nap at home. And then Sunday at dinner, you can say a prayer. Thank you for this time, Lord. And then if you need to get ready for work or do homework, that's a great time for it. The first posture is that of ceasing. The second posture is resisting. It's an old author named Walter Brueggemann who has a book called Sabbath as Resistance. And what he's encouraging us to do is to view the Sabbath as a way of resisting the, the pace and the urgency and the anxiety of our world. That in slowing down, one day out of seven, we're reminding ourselves that we're not God, we're not in control. That we are more than just the, the accumulation of what we do. We're more than our, our achievement. Our identity is not what we can do, what we can earn, what we can produce, what we can demonstrate to the world. Or rather, we are simply God's children. And so by setting down work and setting down achievement and setting down our, our you know, big views of ourselves for one day a week, it, it's resisting the way of the world. And so on a practical level, what is it that we need to resist? What are some Sabbath practices that would, would help you resist the ways of the world? I think the first thing we need to resist is just not feeling guilty about taking a Sabbath. I don't know about you, but I still struggle to even rest in, in the smallest moments. Even when I know I've got this time set aside for rest or family time, it's still so hard to turn off my brain. First thing we have to resist is feeling guilty about maybe not responding to every call or email or text right away. You might even consider turning your phone off, making your Sabbath totally tech-free unless you're really into football, then you can watch football to the glory of God. It's that time of year. But resist, resist getting caught up in all the little things, all the things that can just distract your attention and overwhelm your world. You've got six days for that. Again, this isn't law. We don't try to approach this like the Pharisees, but like Jesus in, in freedom ask, what can we do to resist the, the overwhelming ways of the Lord and step into the Sabbath rest of our Lord? The third thing is feasting. The Sabbath is not just about not doing, but it's about doing the right things. It's not just about eliminating certain things from your, your schedule and your calendar, but adding in the best possible things. And so Sabbath is typically, in, in church history, not a day where people fast. It's a day where people feast. It's a day where you get out the, the best food that you have or, or open the best bottle of wine or, or maybe you go out to eat every night on the Sabbath. It's a day of embracing worship and prayer. It's a way of a day of embracing your friends, of, of calling your parents and or grandparents or children. But it's a day of embracing all that God has for us, feasting and in the sense of food, but also in the way of just enjoying life, enjoying God's creation. 
In the Old Testament, the, the Israelites were commanded to observe these 52 Sabbath days a year. But on top of that, they had a number of festivals that would be a week long each. And so within a, a Hebrew calendar, more than 100 days every year were set aside just for feasting, just for celebration. I mean, basically one in every three days was a celebration in Israel. And what does that tell us about the heart of God? What does that say to us about the life that God wants for us and has for us? And, and that's not even to, to mention the year of Jubilee, which was every 50th year. I mean, the entire year was just feasting and celebration. God is calling us to, to slow down, to get together, to get out the good food, and to enjoy his presence in the presence of each other. So maybe this is a time for you to eat out, as I said. Maybe it's a time you... You know, you've got your little Aldi coffee bags, but then for the Sabbath, you've got your good kind of local, you know, small batch coffee that you get out once a week. I mean, it could be the smallest things, but what can you do a little bit differently on the Sabbath? I'll tell you, it's not overeating if you're with friends and family, right? There's no overeating if it's a feast, if it's on the Sabbath, it's fair game. You can fill in the practices for yourself. There's no law here, but what does it look like to embrace and to feast on the Sabbath yourself? Now, the third and final thing is, is the most important, and it's where the Sabbath points. What is, what is the Sabbath pointing us to? And the first thing is that the Sabbath is actually pointing us back. It's pointing us to creation. There's a Hebrew commentary on Genesis that reads, On the seventh day God created tranquility, serenity, peace. And repose. And so the Sabbath points us back to the created order of things, which includes a rhythm of work and of rest. Sabbath also points us to the present, to the moment that, that we're in right now, to recognize the good things that are around us from God's creation. I mean, Jesus was, was not not busy. I mean, Jesus was a very busy person. As we've been looking through Mark, we see Jesus going from town to town, teaching. He's surrounded by people. And so, so busyness in itself is not wrong. It's not a sin. But we also look to the life of Jesus and we see his love for Sabbath, his love for, for rest, for getting away from the crowds to be with Jesus. We see Jesus was busy, but he was never in a hurry. He's, he's focused on one person at a time. He, he knows his disciples intimately well. And this is because he practiced the Sabbath, but even more, it's because he is the Sabbath. He, he embodies that rest. He is what the Sabbath is pointing to in this very moment. There's an old Puritan writer, John Owen, who writes, the love of God is a love of rest, contentment, and delight. David prays, return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has de dealt bountifully with you. And David makes God his resting place. He's so content with God that he has no desire to look for another. The soul stops all its wanderings and searchings to rest in God alone. I love that vision of right now, in the present moment, the love of God is a love of rest, contentment, and delight, and the soul can stop all of its wanderings and searchings to rest in God alone. The good news that we talk about every week is that Jesus didn't just show us how to live, but he died so that we can actually enter the rest of God. Jesus doesn't just 
teach on rest and give us practices to embrace rest and Sabbath, but he actually goes to the cross to make it possible. To make it so that we can actually rest from our, our efforts to make ourselves right before God. There's an old hymn that says to lay our deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. It's because of Jesus' death that our sins are paid for and there's nothing left for us to do. We can simply receive from the Lord. And so the Sabbath points us back to creation. It points us to the present moment in the God who rests in his love. But the Sabbath also points us forward to the new creation, to the day at the end of all time when Jesus returns and, and everything is made new. The Sabbath is like a giant arrow pointing to the renewal of all things. Sabbath was this part of God's original good creation. It, it didn't come after the fall. It didn't come after sin. Sabbath was there in the very beginning. And so in the new creation, at the renewal of all things, Sabbath is God's design for our life as well. It's a gift from him to us to be received weekly. My friend John Stark is a pastor in New York. He's written this book called The Possibility of Prayer. I know some of you have read it. And in the chapter on Sabbath, he tells this old Hebrew parable. And it says, a prince was once sent into captivity and compelled to live anonymously among rude and illiterate people. Years passed by and he languished with longing for his royal father and for his native land. One day a secret communication reached him in which his father promised to bring him back to the palace, urging him not to unlearn his princely manner. Great was the joy of the prince and he was eager to celebrate the day. And so he invited the people to the local tavern and ordered ample food and drinks for all of them. It was a sumptuous feast, and they were all full of rejoicing. The people, because of the drinks and the prince, in anticipation of his return to the palace. I love that picture, a picture of, of this prince who knows who he is, but is beginning to look, lose track of it. He knows where he belongs, and one day he will be back. And so his father sends a message and, and the way to remember and to rehearse who he really is and where he belongs is to practice this feast. The other people around him enjoy it for a different reason, but he is doing it with great spiritual significance. He's rejoicing because it's a, it's a taste of what he is headed towards, where he ultimately belongs. This is what Sabbath is. It's a way of rehearsing what we have to look forward to for all eternity. Wherever Jesus is, where all things have been made new, there's a continual refreshing of this rest, contentment, and delight. Jesus doesn't just offer us rest. He is our rest. Not just now, but for all eternity. Let's pray.